Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk about the counting of the Omer, just to begin. And there's a debate among the rabbis whether this mitzvah is still possible to perform today without a Beis HaMikdash, without a holy temple. If we can still perform this mitzvah today, then the counting of the Omer is a mitzvah der Raisa. That means that it's still one of the 613 mitzvahs that we're obligated to perform. If it's not, then it's a mitzvah der Abanin, which means that we can't quite do it, but nonetheless, it still has this status of a mitzvah, and therefore the rabbis are telling us to keep on doing it. So what is the counting of the Omer? What's that all about? You would bring this offering on the day after Pesach, which is the second day of Pesach, and you would cut down the barley and you would bring this offering. And interestingly, you would then start counting 50 days toward the receiving of the Torah, where you would bring another meal offering, but this meal offering now is going to be on the level of bread. These are going to be the what's called the shteyalechem, the two loaves of bread that were offered on Shavuos. And it's, there's, there's so much contained in what I just told you. There's like books and books and books and books and books and books and books of information that you can kind of learn out and parse out from that. And on every single level, on the personal level, on the mitzvah level, on the world-building level, on the historical level, it's just, it's just, it's just fairly endless. You know, I'm always quoting this, this piece of imagery that, um, that I love because I, I just think it's so accurate that I, I learned actually in, in high school science that, that there are these stars called dwarf stars that are ridiculously compacted. And a teaspoon of a dwarf star weighs billions of pounds. Yeah. And so that's, you know, when, when sometimes there are certain words in the Torah, certain mitzvahs, certain, certain things that they contain such a small amount of space and yet they're endlessly, you can plummet endlessly through them. And so what I want to discuss is, is the fact that most rabbis, the majority say that the counting of the Omer is actually a dirabanan, since it's so tied to the existence of a, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, and since we don't have that right now, that it's not deraisa. However, the Rambam seems to say that it is deraisa. And then the rabbis are very, very, very careful. If you learn Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law, you see that, that they're always being incredibly sensitive for the opinion of a rabbi who feels that something is stricter than what, say, the majority is. It's a beautiful x-ray into how the rabbis are viewing the thoughts of their contemporaries and earlier generations. Always more respect is given to earlier generations because the sense is, is that their knowledge and their closeness to the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai is closer. Therefore, the way they're formulating things is clear. Interesting, because you have almost like a committee working, but with reverence with each other. You know, a lot of times when you think of modern day committees, 
for different businesses. That's usually like a hellscape for business writers because somehow once something gets into committee, <clears throat> it becomes compromised immeasurably. But you have a very different paradigm for what a committee means when you're talking about great rabbis looking into each other's das, knowledge. Now, I want to give you just some imagery because I think that a lot of people don't fully appreciate what emunas chamim, you would translate as faith, but faith in sages. What does that mean, faith in sages? So it's a, it's a sense that w what they're thinking, how they derive Torah precepts or even Torah law is working on a highly elevated plane. So much so that, that even if it's not quite understood fully and it doesn't seem as rational as, as you would like it to, nonetheless, they're accessing this plane of truth which is really, really important. So people who are quote-unquote more religious, you see that that's one of the qualities that makes them quote-unquote more religious is this attribute called emunas hachamin, which a lot of people who are sort of kind of more beginners or a little bit more secularly oriented, they don't really grasp this concept. And I'm going to try to help you understand this concept right now, okay? With a bit of unusual imagery. Now, you know the glaciers are melting. In fact, I saw a headline this past week that said the party's over. It can't be stopped at this point. They're all going to melt. Someone big in the U.S. government made that announcement. In other words, it's, it's, now it's just a matter of time. It, the process cannot be reversed. Whatever that means in terms of the climate, but that's not our subject here. What I'm very, very intrigued by is that, and I don't know if you've ever seen any video on this, but it's really extraordinary if you haven't, which is when a piece of a glacier falls off and the sound that it makes is absolutely deafening. It sounds like a, an earthquake. By the way, I live in California, so I can tell you firsthand, earthquakes are really noisy. Like a lot of people just don't factor in just on a sensory level how noisy they are. But when a piece of a glacier kind of, it's like ripping off a limb on, on a giant structure. Okay, but, but that's not the point. Here's the point. What happens when a piece of a glacier falls off is that water is exposed on the glacier. Now, think about this. That water, and it's fresh water, fresh water, can be 2,000 years old. Can you imagine fresh water 2,000 years old? That's, that's a wild thought, isn't it? It's happening every day. Now, imagine I drink that water, and there's, there's no health I do it. Who knows? Maybe it's even healthier for all I know. I don't know. But that's incredible. Okay. 
Now, let's, let's take a step back. Remember, Torah is compared to water. You see, if you really want to appreciate what Torah is, on the one level, Torah is divine revelation. But really, it's divine revelation filtered through human consciousness. But even more than that, if the human consciousness has spiritually evolved through the performance of the mitzvahs in a really spectacular way, what we would call, it, that, that type of person is what we would call a tzaddik, right? If someone elevates themselves through observance of the Torah commandments to this very, very high level, then the Torah that gets filtered through their human consciousness is incredibly precious, infinitely precious, infinitely precious. So what does that mean to have faith in sages? It means that you prize this incredible intersection between divine revelation and awesome personal sacrifice and work and spiritual dedication, which is all focused purely on serving God without any self-interest. When the divine revelation filters through that level of elevated human consciousness, that's what's in all these Torah books that we're always quoting. When you're quoting Rashi, that's what Rashi is. When you're saying the Rambam, when you're saying the Ramban, when you're saying the Chofetz Chaim, right? When you're saying the Lubavitcher Rebbe, all the Rebbe's, right? That's what we're talking about. Now, when I open up a book, say, of the Mea Shaloch, of the Ishbitzer Rebbe, and I'm learning that, do you know what I'm doing? I am drinking fresh water from 200, 250 years ago. When I'm learning the Shar B'tachon by Rabbeinu B'chaya, I am drinking fresh water from what? Three, four, five hundred years ago. This is amazing. This is amazing when you're really dealing with the purest Torah sages and sources, there is no sense that it's time-bound at all. Because they're elevating themselves to this exalted level and intersecting with eternal wisdom. And so nothing ever gets dated. It's never not relevant because the entire spectrum is just truth, which is eternal. I was, when you were discussing the, the idea of Torah not being time-bound, that you're dealing with eternity at every moment. That yes. The study coming out of the mouths and writings of Sadiqim is, is so powerful. I remember one time you were discussing the eternity of Torah study versus the dead ends reached by just about every animal of science. 
how you know we had metallurgy and all these other things that hit dead ends, but we have an eternal tradition that's you know thousands of years of research unbroken. Yeah. So. So Sam's making a great point. If you if you look at the history of science, you you have the this thing called. But by the way, a, a great book which I really highly highly recommend. It's called The Structure of Scientific Revolution, a classic book, short book, very short book, very readable. But it goes through the history of science and it shows you how there have been these paradigm shifts throughout history where basically all the scientific work of the generation or generations leading up to it, sometimes hundreds of years, gets thrown out the window and they more or less start from scratch again. You know, today we, we sort of like scoff at the idea of alchemists. Al- what, what, what was alchemy? It was this amazing idea that there was something called the philosopher's stone that if you could sort of like get this stone, this, this compound, and touch it against another stone, so like you could touch it against, say, bronze, you could basically trigger a chemical reaction in that bronze which would transform it into gold. So you, can basi- you could basically mint gold. All you needed was this initial, you know, stone. And the greatest minds of the generation, for generations, saw this as a very plausible idea. And if you think about it, it is is sort of kind of, it kind of makes sense in a weird way, because we do have these ideas of chemical reactions, where something becomes something else. So why shouldn't you be able to trigger a chemical reaction that results in gold? I mean, it's not implausible. So, so in other words, you, you, you might think like, oh, for several generations, we just had idiots calling themselves scientists. That would be such a disrespectful look at, at how hard these great minds were working, but they were working on a problem that ultimately was a dead end. And so then at a certain point, science restarts. I'll give you another example. Aristotle posited that the, that the most beautiful, organic, pure form was the circle or the sphere. And since that was the most perfected shape, that it had to be that the orbit of planets around the sun, say, had to be in the form of a circle. And one of the most accurate forms of ancient science was astrological measurements. Like the ancients back in the day were like super good at charting the paths of stars. They were super good at it. And so Aristotle was like basically the king of knowledge for, you know, at least a thousand years. Like he was rationality and like the the Rambam says that he was one step below prophecy. That's Maimonides, the Rambam said that. 
That's how high regard, even in the Torah world, Aristotle was held. And so they started making these measurements. And it's like, dang, why aren't the things orbiting in circles? And so for generations, gifted astronomers were saying to themselves, there must be something wrong with me because what my findings are, are contradicting the premise of Aristotle. So I have to be wrong, and surely he's right. And then along comes Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler in the late 1500s. And all of a sudden, it's sort of like, guys, it's an ellipse. <laughs> it's just what it is. It's not a circle. It's an ellipse, and Aristotle is wrong. And of course, all the math proves that out. Everything proves that out. It's not even a question anymore. But again, here you see an example of a paradigm shifting, and then centuries of work getting thrown out the window. Not the case with Torah. This is the amazing thing about Torah is that the premise of the mitzvahs is that they're from God and that they're eternal. And all of the work and all of the Torah study done by the greatest minds since the reception of the Torah itself is still accurate, is still on the table, is still usable. And everyone has built in an unbroken chain on the previous generation's work till this day. There is no intellectual discipline that matches the generations of unbroken genius and dedication that is in Torah study. No other discipline. And, the, and when you think that, that these great people were not just great minds, they were great human beings. They were exalted human beings. Then you have an even greater appreciation of what Torah is. You know, there's a, a famous chapter, story brought over in the Talmud where the, the wise men of Athens, right? This is around the time of Aristotle. The wise people of Athens would debate the rabbis of the Talmud. And they record many of the debates that they had. One time, they were taking a break and the Greek philosophers were drinking and two of them got into a fight and one kills the other. One murders the other in, like, in front of everybody. And the rabbis are aghast. They say, aha, we were just talking like the deepest, most exalted philosophy. How could you do such a thing? And the person answered back, we're philosophers when we're philosophizing. Not the case with Torah. Right? That tzaddikim are not just tzaddikim when they're giving over a talk. Right? Or they're in public view. In fact, if someone desires to be a tzaddik, you have to endeavor to actually hide most of the good that you're doing. You don't talk about it. Unless it's to a student and you're telling it to them to give them ideas to raise them up. 
so that they have the tools to become tzaddikim. But otherwise, you, you don't even talk about it. I've given you another bit of imagery uh, that, that I want to share with you. Back in the day, when you wanted to go on a long journey, right, there were no cars, there were no airplanes, you were basically taking a camel, maybe a donkey, and you were traveling over vast stretches of desert. Now, how do you do that? That's really hard to do because it's several days and there are no landmarks. Now imagine you want to give someone directions. Mm -hmm. And I say to you, okay, you see that sand dune, which could be a towering structure like mountains. You see that sand dune? Go up there and then take a right. And then you see way in the distance that other sand dune? Go to that and take a left. What's the problem? The problem is at night, the winds come and they level the desert. So all of these things, as impressive as they are, as mountainous as they are, they disappear. If you want to give someone directions in the desert, you have to navigate by the stars. Something higher, something above. There are certain things, as you go through human history, civilization prizes certain things in every generation. And yet, what I would suggest, and this is based on just looking honestly over history, many things that were sacred cows are no longer sacred cows. And the mitzvot are still there. That which is eternal remains. And so when you're drinking the water of the sages, again, which is the intersection between divine revelation and elevated, the most elevated, pure, selfless human consciousness, you're dealing in the realm of eternity. You know, this is classic Judaism that the generations are going down since Mount Sinai since we're getting further away from the moment of revelation. But Reb Shlomo adds, very trenchantly, that every generation is also getting closer to Mashiach. So you have to have reverence, reverence, and yira, actual yira, actual awe, slash fear, for the opinions of the past, because that's going to guide us. At the same time, though, you have to, things have to be ever fresh, and brand new. And Reb Shlomo gave a beautiful visual. He says, why is it that on the Shabbos table, we take challah and we dip it in salt? Because salt is a preservative. That keeps old things fresh. But challah, it's only good if it's new. Right? You don't want thousand-year-old bread. (laughs) You want bread that's made that day, ideally. So the idea of dipping challah in salt is you're, you're dipping the new into the old. And, and that's, that is sort of like the, the Torah way of going through life, is you keep it fresh, you keep it spontaneous, but within the framework of that which has been revealed in ancient times and is equally true today. And striking that balance 
is an art form. It's an art form. If you're a little too ahead of your times, then, you know, people get very uncomfortable. If you're too behind the times, no one wants to listen to you. So we have a verse in the, the prayers that we say every day, Or Chadash Al Tzion Tayir, which is translated as shine a new light on Zion. But Rabbi Moshe Wolfson Shlita says, no, Or Chadash is not a new light. It's a light of newness. In other words, let me be the embodiment of newness. But how are we defining newness? As the holy intersection between the future and the past and the present. So now let's get back to this idea of what is a dirabunin? What do, what do the rabbis say? And why is their committee, quote unquote, work different from the committee work of a bureaucracy at a corporation? Why are they always sort of like saying, yeah, we feel this way and everything like that, but the Bach is machmer, he's strict on that, and so we're going to paskin, we're going to decide like him even though we feel otherwise, and there are more of us, now that doesn't always happen. You have something called, you know, like a das yachid. You have something, someone who's considered, okay, that's his individual thing. We don't feel like that. And so it's not always incorporated in, but often it is incorporated in. And so it's not committee work going haywire and everything always sort of like skewing toward the right, so to speak. What it is, is this appreciation, this reverence that the sages have for the other sages. And this appreciation to incorporate their view, even if it doesn't necessarily always sync with their view. They use this word, choshesh, they want to be careful because this great person said this thing. So they have to factor that in somehow. So there are people like this in every generation. And they are very, very great people. Right? I mean, think about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He's standing in his at least 80 years old, and he's standing for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours every single Sunday giving out dollars. What is the difference in terms of spiritual level of the average person accepting this dollar from the Lubavitcher Rebbe? And maybe they might even be able to exchange some words. I remember one time I got a dollar from the Rebbe, actually gave me more dollars because I asked him for a blessing. This is, this is a fun story, actually. I'll tell you this story. I, I was by the Lubavitcher Rebbe three times. Two times for dollars, and one time for what they call the kosher bracha, uh, where, he, where they would pour a little bit of the kiddush into a, from his cup into another cup, and people would line up and get it. So it was very similar to receiving a dollar, but it was, it was a, a variation of it. Anyway, the first time I received a dollar 
from, from him. I, I was, there, in front of me were a couple of Sephardic men. And the reason why I mention that is because there are two different traditions in terms of how Sephardim interact with a tzaddik and how Ashkenazim interact with a tzaddik. Two different traditions, both holy. The Sephardic tradition is to take the Rav's hand and to kiss his hand. That's a sign of reverence and respect. Very beautiful. The, by, by Chabad Hasidim, which is Ashkenaz, the minig, the tradition is not to touch the Rebbe. And again, that's also a sign of reverence and respect. So you have two different expressions of reverence and respect, both beautiful. Okay? So, so I'm Ashkenazi. So although my son did the 23 in me, and this is hilarious. You ready for this? He is 99.97 European Jew. And he is 0.03% Egyptian. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah, because we were all in Egypt, you know. Although there was no mixing, there was no mixing between the Jewish people and the Egyptians. But, but, but you know, that would be that would be that would be amazing if that 0.03 percent was from our time in Egypt. I'll tell you something. Yesterday, I was walking home from shul, and I was standing on the corner, and waiting for the light to change, and I was carrying with me a copy of the Ishbitzer Rebbe's Sefer. You know, so and. I'm just standing there, you know, by myself with, with the book in my hand. And this woman, probably in her, I'd say, mid-50s, standing next to me, she has a cross around her neck. She asks me, uh, what book is that? So if you know anything about what that is, it's a famously holy but extremely difficult book to learn. It's extremely complex but but endlessly rewarding because of the depth and the beauty of his thoughts. The people who are in the know, when they hear Ishbitz or Meshaloach, like that conjures like worlds in their mind. So, like I say, this, this woman comes up to me, mid-50s, with a cross around her neck, and she asks me, what book is that? <laughs> How do you answer that question? <laughs> Waiting for the light to change to green, which is going to happen in three seconds. So I did my best. And then I asked her how she, how she was. And, and she, she said, I'm Egyptian. She said, have you ever been to Egypt? And when I related this to my wife when I got home, she said to me, you should have told her, I just left. <laughs> right? We just had Passover. And then she had another suggestion. Or you should have said, yeah, I was there for 210 years. <laughs> I think both of those answers would have sort of like raised a, a number of questions. And then she gave me a blessing, which was really nice. And I thought, wow, this, she's like this combination of Edom and Mitzrayim, and she's blessing me. So think about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Think about the average person getting a dollar from him. 
you're literally inhabiting two different worlds simultaneously. Uh, Let me just say it a slightly different way, just so it's a little more grounded. But but it's the same thought. My father, you should rest in peace, who is a, a psychologist, said to me one time, my sister had some kids and they were like, I'm making up these ages, but, but basically at the time, two years old, five years old, seven years old, and 11 years old, something like that. And he was interacting with them. And then he told me afterwards, do you realize they're all inhabiting completely different worlds? <laughs> right? Because these developmental stages are just completely different. Like, what's the difference between the consciousness of a two-year-old and a seven-year-old? Right? That's worlds apart from, say, a 50-year-old and a 55-year-old. I mean, you can't even compare it. They're different universes. So when the average person is standing next to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, you're literally inhabiting two different universes. But during this lifespan, you're on the same time-space plane. But after 120, you leave this world. You're going to be on one level, And the tzaddik is going to be in a completely different place. A completely different place. Just because he internalized so much infinity. I'm going to say that again. He internalized so much infinity through the performance of chesed, kindness, and mitzvot, and Torah learning. That turns into rocket fuel for the soul that blasts the soul into the highest dimensions at the end of our lifetime. Now, we're also accumulating rocket fuel, but X amount of rocket fuel gets you high. 10,000 X rocket fuel gets you 10,000 times higher. So it's, it's intuitive. Now, now, here's the interesting thing. The point being that in the next world, you're really not going to have the opportunity to interact with these great people. In this world right now, you can interact with these great people. And then I'm going to tell you something else, in case that sounds slightly depressing. <laughs> You can walk over to a bookshelf and you can interact with those great people right now that you're now going to have a connection which will allow you connect to, to connect with them in the future, in the next realm. In other words, if you learn their Torah in this world while you still have a chance to connect with them, you have entrance and a connection with them in the next world, where you otherwise wouldn't. Which means, let me put it really simple, okay? If you want to go into the stratosphere in the eternal realms, learning their Torah in this world is your passport and your ticket 
to these higher, awesome places. So what does it mean? Like, like what does it mean like to, to learn the Torah of a tzaddik? It means to drink from the water, fresh water that's hundreds of years old, and to be able to access a level of eternity that you probably would never have access to at the end of 120. Because the Torah itself is bigger than this world. You know, one of the great theological questions is, if the Torah is bigger than this world, how did God give the Torah? How did God fit the Torah in this world if the Torah is bigger than this world? How did he do it? I'll show you how it manifests in an even more problematic way. Our tradition is that you're actually given the reward for your mitzvahs. This is for most of your mitzvahs. There are a few exceptions to this rule, but for most of the mitzvahs, the reward that you receive for doing them is at the end of your life, right? Now, one of the explanations of why that's the case is because the reward for a mitzvah is bigger than the world itself. It's so large, the reward for a mitzvah, that it doesn't fit into this world. So if that's the case with that, we've got a parallel problem which seems to have a different solution, which is if that the Torah is bigger than this world, then how did God fit the Torah, which is bigger than this world, into this world? But there is an answer there. Because this world is actually made out of Torah. The Torah was God's vision for this world that he wanted to create. And then he took the vision of the world that he wanted to create, and he created the world out of the energy of that vision. So the entire world is made out of Torah. Which helps to explain some things that people have questions about. Like, for instance, it says, like, for instance, if you give charity, it's going to rain. Well, what does me handing a dollar to someone have to do with the rain clouds? But if the entire world is made out of Torah, and the Torah preceded this world, then there's a wiring in nature and creation itself where tzedakah is tied to rain. So actually, it makes a lot of sense. So the Rav, one of the greatest Hasidic masters, said that the way God put the Torah in this world, the Torah which is bigger than this world, the way God put the Torah into this world is that he gave us the Torah on Shabbos. That's the answer. Shabbos is a day that has no boundaries to it. So one of the things that we're counting toward in terms of the counting of the Omer is we're counting toward the 50th day when we're going to bring these two loaves of bread, which was part of the offering for Shavuos, which is the holiday of the giving of the Torah. Now that's very, very deep because the Gomorrah says that one of the candidates for the fruit of the tree of knowledge 
They're different candidates. What was the fruit exactly? So Rashi says it was a fig. Why? Because it says that Adam and Chava covered themselves when they realized they were naked. They covered themselves with a fig leaf. Well, where did they get the fig leaf? Well, from the fig tree that they just ate from. So that's very logical. So that's one, that's one opinion, that's a fig. Another opinion, this is the Kabbalistic viewpoint, is that it was a grape. And that gives us insight into the blessing that we make over grapes, because a grape grows from a vine, not really a tree. And yet, what's the blessing over a grape? Bere pri ha'etz, from the tree. So there you see hinted at in the blessing that we make over the grape a hint that it really was the tree of knowledge. Now I'll tell you something just as an aside, but I think it's a good thing to do. I was told this by a big rabbi who is Ashkenazi, but when he says the blessing over Kiddush, over wine, he pronounces the word, he says, pri. Hagefen, not Brepri Hagafen. So the official grammatical way to make that blessing is Brepri Hagafen. That's how you would that's how you would vowelize the word when it's the last word in a sentence. Okay? But if the word appears in the middle of the sentence, it would be Gefen, not Guffin. So what he taught me was that you should say Brepri Hagefen, which even though it's not grammatically correct, the idea is that you're leaving this opening for Shefa, for divine abundance to come out at the end. You're not closing it off through the vowelization and ending the word. At the end, you're leaving it open. Isn't that interesting? It's really beautiful. And you see, like, when you hear things like that, you, you understand just the endless amount of thought, the endless amount of care, the endless amount of love that's gone into absolutely every aspect of Torah observance. The vowelization of the word gefin, gafin at the end, like, and tying into the, like, it, it's amazing. Now, another opinion, this is, again, like gets into this counterintuitive realm, was that the fruit, keyword fruit, from the tree of knowledge was wheat. That, that's also in the Gemara. Now, okay, so what does that mean? Because we know that wheat is not a fruit. Okay, so there are different explanations that it grew so high, it grew high like a tree, and okay, different explanations. But what's really interesting is, is that the rabbis teach that when we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai, that that was the fixing of the snake bite from the Garden of Eden. That we finally got the zuama, the snake poison, the spiritual toxin. And what is the spiritual toxin? You ready? The best explanation I personally ever heard 
was from Reb Tzadok HaKoyin, says the following. What consciousness did the snake put into us? The idea that there's such a thing as a place where God isn't. I'm going to say that again. The snake poison was this implantation into our consciousness of an idea of the idea that there's such a thing as a place where God isn't. You can think about that for the rest of your life. You can think about that for the rest of your life. Because you see, and he, he explains this, this is within his explanation. If you have something that's tame, spiritually impure, it can also be simultaneously spiritually pure. It's binary. It's either spiritually pure or spiritually impure. Tame or tahor. It can't be both. <clears throat> and so, and kosher or non-kosher. It can't be both. It's one or the other. And so, what the snake put into our way of thinking is, if I've gone against the will of God, then I've exiled God. God can't be here and not here at the same time. So therefore, I have driven God away. Or God has left on his own accord. Whatever it is. But what we didn't realize is that God is with us even in our impurity. And he doesn't leave. That's the awesome, incredible thought. God never leaves. Even if we plummet to the depths of depravity, God doesn't leave. And when we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai, that got communicated to us in the deepest, most powerful way. And so we were cleansed of this snake poison. And so the offering for Shavuos, which is the receiving of the Torah, which is the cleansing of the snake poison, which got into us when we ate from the tree of knowledge, which was wheat, is to bring bread. Because the bread is now the fixing of the wheat that we ate. Through lack of permission, we are now bringing a refined, beautiful version of that wheat, which is now bread, and we're commanded to do so. And so there's this amazing tikkun, this amazing fixing. Now I'm just going to end. I'm going to end with this idea. One of the aspects of counting the Omer is that we're counting toward giving this bread offering. Shteelecha means two loaves of bread. Okay? And by the way, just so you know, it was not put on the altar itself, on the Mizbeach, because chametz, leavened products were never on the altar. But they would lean them against the altar. Just an interesting thing to know. 
So, so we're counting toward giving these two loaves of bread. Now the Rambam says that counting the Omer to this day, even though we don't have a holy temple, is a mitzvah der Raisa. It's one of the 613 commandments, and that's what it is. Okay. Now I want to say the following. I want to say the following. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Do you know why it's still a mitzvah der Raisa? Because you could say, well, wait a second. If we don't have a holy temple, <clears throat> how are we bringing the two loaves of bread in another 33 days? So it has to be a mitzvah der Rabbanan. How can he say it's a mitzvah der Raisa? So I would like to suggest the following. How do we know in 33 days' time we're not going to have a Beis HaMikdash? How do we know? How do we know? And with that in mind, I want to tell you one of the most beautiful teachings. And you'll see how it's parallel. You know, what is, it, what is a, a chassid? What, is, what does it mean, a chassid? By the way, I'll give you the definition of the Pshiska Rebbe. So, so everybody knows that a, a chassid goes beyond the law, does more than what's just asked. So we have a mitzvah not to fool another person. So the, pish, the, the Pshiska Rebbe says, you know what a chassid is? He's someone who doesn't fool himself. Right? Now remember, that's the Kutzker Rebbe's Rebbe. Kutzker was all about truth. Right? So his Rebbe is already teaching him. What it means to be a chassid is that you don't try to fool yourself. So if a chassid is running to do a mitzvah, let's talk about Tisha B'Av for a moment. Tisha B'Av, of course, is the bleak day in the Jewish calendar where both holy temples were destroyed and endless tragedies occurred. The Spanish Inquisition, the beginning of World War I, which leads into World War II. Right? I mean cartloads of Talmuds were burnt by, by the way, by who? By, by King Louis, better known today, you ready for this, as St. Louis. Do you know where the name St. Louis comes from? This gent <laughs> who burned cartloads of Talmuds, which had to be handwritten back in that day. This was in France. Do you know did you ever wonder, like, Rashi was French. Rashi is like, like the, 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 the top of the top of the top of the top. You can't learn Talmud without Rashi. You can't learn the, the, the Torah without Rashi. Where did all the great rabbis go in France after Rashi? Hello, St. Louis. Well, you can't learn without any books, right? I mean, when he burnt those books, how much genius, how much salvation is not in this world because of what he did? That, that's, that's also on Tisha B'Av. So on Tisha B'Av, since tefillin is called jewelry, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an adornment. It's this beautiful thing, tefillin. And you... 
wrap yourself in it, and it's, it's very, very beautiful. Because it's called an adornment, and because, especially in the beginning of Tisha B'Av, until Chatzot, until midday, we sit on the floor, we don't even sit on a chair. So how can you put an adornment on at this time of, you know, when the, when the holy temples are burning? So we wait till Chatzot, we wait till midday, and then we put on tefillin. Okay. So here's the question. Why is it that Hasidim wait till about 7 p.m. when the rest of the Jewish world is putting it on as soon as they can at about 12 p.m. or 1 p.m., whenever midday is that year? In other words, it should be the opposite. The, if anyone's going to be putting it on right away, running to do the mitzvah, it should be the Hasidim. And yet you see the Hasidim, you know, if you don't know anything, you could think that they're being very lackadaisical about the performance of this mitzvah. Oh, I don't have to put my tefillin on until the end of the day, right? So Rabbi Moshe Wolfson Shlita gives this awesome, awesome, awesome explanation why Hasidim are waiting till the end of the day. He says because Tisha B'Av is one of these days that's very ripe for Mashiach to come. And if Mashiach comes on Tisha B'Av, then it's going to be a holiday, then it will be a day where you're not supposed to put on tefillin. And so the Hasidim are waiting till the end of the day because who knows, maybe Mashiach is coming and I don't put on tefillin today. So only when it gets to the very end of the day are they putting on tefillin. So we have to live with this consciousness. We have to live with this consciousness because nothing's difficult for God. And God can do God, God has already promised that he's bringing the redemption. He already had the perfected world in mind before he created the world. It's already been incorporated into the world. It can happen at any moment. And living with Mashiach, as I personally understand it, really means not so much that it's happening today, it's happening tomorrow, it's happening by the end of the year, it's happening this year. That's not how I understand it at all. To me, that's just a recipe for getting burnt out. The way I understand it is, God can do anything at any moment. And so, of course, it can happen at any moment. <laughs> because God can do anything at, anything at any moment, and nothing is difficult for God. To me, that's a much more intuitive, organic, sustainable way of living with Mashiach. But if that's the case... I'll just tell you for me, and I'm not playing games right now, I'm being very serious, right? you know? It's very painful. Not, I don't want to say very painful, that's overstating it. But it's, it's always a moment that I struggle with. Like, when I schedule a flight. Like, how can I schedule a flight two weeks from now? When there's some sort of tacit that I'm not going to be in Israel, right? How, like, we had this wonderful time on, on Pesach, and we were part of this program, and we haven't done a program in something like 20 years. And my kids are like, oh, maybe, maybe we'll be able to do it again next year, or maybe we could do a different program. And to me, that's so heartbreaking. How can, you, how can I even think about a program when, when we have to be in Israel 
God willing, and making conscious plans. You know, there's, I don't know how much people talk about it today, but there was a period of time when people were talking about it. How is it that the Lubavitcher Rebbe didn't leave a successor? So I'm sure many people will have different opinions. I don't know that there's an official answer to this. But I can just tell you what my thought is, for whatever it's worth. He was so wholly given over to the idea of the redemption of the world that if he's appointing a successor, that means that there must have been some space in his mind where he's already saying, it's not going to happen, and here's, here's the successor. And if he was completely given over to the idea that Hashem is bringing the redemption, how can he at the same time making plans for when the redemption isn't going to come? Those two things can't fit in the same consciousness. So let's live with this idea. Let's live with this understanding that nothing is difficult for God and that God can do anything he wants at any moment. And that that's the reality. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.